We are now in part three of our Acts of the Holy Spirit series, where we've been tracing Paul's missionary journeys from the Middle East across to Europe. And today we follow Paul to travel to another significant city, the city of Ephesus. So to pick up where we left off last week, here's a map of Paul's second missionary journey. Last Sunday, we looked at Acts chapter 17, where Paul preached the gospel in Athens. You can uh, see that with a purple dot on the map. Paul then traveled to Corinth, indicated by the yellow dot. Paul meets Priscilla and Quilla, and he stayed there for a year and a half to teach the Word of God, which we read about in Acts chapter 18. Paul then decides to head back to Antioch in Syria, and Priscilla and Quilla follow Paul. On the way, they stopped at Ephesus. It's indicated by the orange dot. Priscilla and Quirilla stay in Ephesus, and Paul continues to make his way back to the church in Antioch, Syria, via Caesarea, and he spends a bit of time in Jerusalem. But he promises to go back to Ephesus. And so that completes Paul's second missionary journey. But Paul does keep his promise to go back to Ephesus, and that is the catalyst of his third missionary journey. So as you can see from the map, Paul travels by road through the interior to get to Ephesus. And this is where we pick up the story from Acts chapter 19. The big theme in Acts chapter 19, you might have noticed, is power. You might have noticed the word power being repeated in today's passage. So let me ask you with this question. Do you see yourself as a powerful person? How do you react as you think about that question? Or can I ask Chapel Hill, are we a powerful church? How do you react when you consider connecting power with the church? Power is a word that brings up a lot of things for many people. And unfortunately, power has become more of a negative term in our culture, and understandably so. Many of us have seen the dark side of power, in politics, in business, military, law enforcement, and sadly we've seen the dark side of power in our homes and even in our churches. Power in many Western cultures has come to mean the ability to coerce and to dominate. But we would be wonderfully surprised to learn that in the dictionary definition of power is the ability to do or act. Truth be told, power is not negative, but a a neutral term. And what we've been seeing through the Acts of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts is the disciples are empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak and act on behalf of Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit is the supernatural power to speak, act, and love like Jesus. And so the power of the Holy Spirit enables us to speak, act, and love like Jesus in ways that we can't do ourselves. And this is demonstrated in Acts chapter 19. And in the story of Acts chapter 19, we see the power of the Holy Spirit to display, be displayed in gospel sufficiency, gospel deliverance, and gospel disturbance as we break down this chapter. So let's look at the power of the Holy Spirit in bringing about gospel sufficiency. When Paul arrived at Ephesus, he found some disciples. Now, disciples was a very common thing. It's a very common term to be a follower of someone, a learner of someone. So it raises the question, what kind of disciples were they? Disciples of who? 
And so to figure out who they were following, Paul asked them if they had received the Holy Spirit. And this was with their answer. No, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John ba- John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. Paul was able to discern that these disciples received John's baptism, not Christian baptism, which meant they were disciples of John and not Jesus. John the Baptist's ministry was to announce the coming of Jesus, to announce him as the true Messiah, to prepare people to receive uh, Jesus, to give them a posture of repentance, of turning to Jesus. And so John's baptism by water was to point to the baptism that Jesus would to give and offer, which is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, to cleanse and change our sinful hearts by the Holy Spirit. Paul points to the deficiencies in the faith of these disciples to only rely on external rituals for the cleansing of sin. Only the Holy Spirit can sufficiently cleanse sin and renew our hearts from the inside out. And likewise, being baptized in the church doesn't make you a changed person or a saved person. Water baptism is an external sign that points to the reality of the eternal baptism of the Holy Spirit. And so any external ritual or external uh, behavior modification, they're deficient to save us and to truly change us. It's the gift and the power of the Holy Spirit that saves us and truly changes us. Many can have this deficient understanding about Jesus and Christianity. And so like Paul, we can play the role to help people understand the sufficiency of the gospel for salvation and for transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. To help people understand that it's not on their own power, by their own acts and works that saves them, but it's by the power of God, the sacrificial act of Jesus' death and resurrection and the work of the Holy Spirit to save and change people. So the disciples finally got it, and Paul, as is Paul explained it to them, and they believed and confessed Jesus as Lord. When Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, which caused the disciples to speak in tongues and to prophesy. And this was an outward sign that confirmed the inward spiritual reality that had taken place in their hearts. Now, this doesn't mean that speaking in tongues and prophecy are the only signs to tell whether someone has the Holy Spirit. This was more of a specific event in the story of Acts to show that the disciples in Ephesus experienced like a mini Pentecost as a milestone marker of showing the gospel going from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and now to the ends of the earth. The rest of the New Testament instructs the church to look for the fruits of the Spirit, which is character change, things like patience, kindness, and self-control as ways to discern if someone is filled and being influenced by the Holy Spirit in our age. And so these disciples of John receive the Holy Spirit and they become disciples of Jesus. Paul then goes on to seek to proclaim the gospel in the synagogues to more people. Some embrace and believe in the message Others rejected the message of Jesus. And in response to that rejection, Paul and disciples begin to look for another place to preach the gospel. And they ended up in the Hall of Tyrannus, which was a school of rhetoric, where they spent two years preaching the gospel, making new disciples. 
And what we learn from this little episode is that even though Paul experienced rejection, he didn't give up. He persisted in sharing the gospel, and God used him to take him to meet other people who were more open to the gospel, and many did put their faith and trust in Jesus. And so it encourages us to also never give up sharing our faith, even though when some people might reject us. In the next section, we see God's power in gospel deliverance in Paul's ministry. We read from verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illness were cured, and the evil spirits left them. There is nothing ordinary about this scene. The Holy Spirit empowered Paul to do extraordinary things. Evil spirits succumbed to the power of God and fled as Paul began to preach the word of God. God even healed people as they merely touched Paul's garments. What this scene is conveying to us is that there is a physical realm which we can touch, see, and hear, but there's also another dimension to our world, a spiritual realm where God the Father is, where Jesus is seated on the throne, where there are angels, where there is Satan, and where there are evil spirits. And so if we have this worldview, then it's completely rational and understandable to be praying for God's power to protect us and to help us overcome the influences of Satan and evil spirits when we find ourselves in various difficult situations. And this is what we see in the city of Ephesus. Luke, the author, shows us that evil spirits, Ephesian sorcery, Jewish exorcists, were no match for the power of the Holy Spirit. We read that Paul's extraordinary power of the Holy Spirit gets the attention of the local Jewish exorcists, the sons of Sceva. They caught wind of what Paul was doing, and they attempted to do the same thing by invoking the name of Jesus. We read from verse 13. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. What they were doing was attempting to leverage the name of Jesus for their own commercial motives, rather than humbly submit to the saving power of the gospel. They wanted to use Jesus rather than personally know Jesus. Like the sons of Sceva, many in our own day similarly call upon the name of Jesus to use him rather than to personally know him. Whether it's calling upon the name of Jesus to do something for you, like a genie God, to find someone to, say, marry for financial prosperity, for a good life, for access and privileges in being a Christian, rather than having an internal relationship with God. Other times, genuine Christians can permit this kind of attitude in their own hearts. They can lose sight of the reality of the Christian life from the Bible, and they can think that because they are followers of Jesus, then life will exclude uh, discomfort and suffering. And life with Jesus will exude peace and comfort, which then can make you have a sense of entitlement, which demands a certain way of life from Jesus. Well, that's not genuine biblical discipleship. To follow Christ is to give our lives to Christ, including our culturally shaped expectations of this life. And here's the shocking thing about this story. 
This story shows us that even demons can tell between a genuine follower of Jesus or someone who is faking it and using Jesus. Verse 15, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? The evil spirit knows who Jesus is and the power that Paul has by the Holy Spirit, but knows nothing about the sons of Sceva. The only thing that the evil spirit recognizes about them is that they are imposters and have no business giving him orders by invoking the name of Christ. And as if being called out by an evil spirit isn't humiliating enough, the sons of Sceva, they're attacked by the possessed man. And this reminds us that the Lord has his way of making sure that the name of Jesus Christ is honored and glorified. And this become known, this story about the son of Sceva running in humiliation, bleeding and naked, this news about this um, exorcist uh, is known by the Jews and the Gentiles across Ephesus. And the result of this extraordinary encounter was that the Holy Spirit convicted many of their idolatry, convicted them of their powerlessness, of their witchcraft and sorcery that they practice. Many were delivered from the occult, Many came repenting, bringing their articles and scrolls of sorcery to be burned. And the value of what they burned, 50,000 pieces of silver um, articles, testified to the power of the gospel and the preaching of God's word. The power of the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit delivered many from evil spiritual bondage. And this led to a great disturbance to the city of Ephesus. We read from verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together along with the workers in related trades and said, You know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large number of people here in Ephesus. What the people of Ephesus were repenting of was their idolatry and sorcery, and they became Christians. And Demetrius, who was a silversmith who made idols out of silver, was losing business. So in an effort to save his business, he felt it was necessary to make a public push against Christianity. And this shows us the transformative power of the gospel in invading every sphere of our lives. It spills out into society and culture. The gospel confronts the sinfulness inherent in some of the systems of our society. When a Christian proclaims the gospel, they will not only meet lost souls, they will expose immoral institutions. Demetrius major charge against Paul was that he claimed this in verse 26. Paul says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. What a great summary of the Christian message. Gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Will you worship something created or will you worship the Creator? Will you worship something made with hands or will you worship the God who made you? Will you worship created stuff or will you worship the one who is behind all of creation? Gods made by hands are no gods at all. And the power of the gospel can disturb a whole city by calling out 
threatening, disturbing the practices of idolatry. That is the power of the Holy Spirit through the message of the gospel. A whole city is disturbed and disrupted for the worship of the true living God. So let's look more deeply on how we make our own idols, just like the Ephesians did. To make an idol, there's only three simple steps. So here's the steps on how to make your own idol. Number one, you make it. Number two, you protect it. And number three, your identity is defined by it. So firstly, you make it. It's a product of your own hands and invention. You may not make it physically, but you do make it into a God by elevating it to that place. So for example, I didn't make my own kids, God did, but I can make them into a God and define my identity by them. I didn't make my body, God did, but I can make my body and my bodily appetites into a God by defining my identity by it. Secondly, you protect it. Your false God doesn't save you, but you have to save it. I have to keep it propped up, up on its pedestal. I have to make sure that it maintains its power. I have to come to rescue it. And thirdly, my identity depends on it. Who am I if I don't have X? X is our, your idol. Who am I if I don't have this job? Who am, would I be if I don't have what others have? I'm a worthless nobody if I am not X. I make it, I protect it, and my identity is defined by it. And you can see this fleshed out in verse 27. Demetrius says there is danger not only to our trade, not only to our job, but also that the temple of the great goddess of Artemis will be discredited. Guys, we've got to protect our goddess because if our goddess is discredited, if it's disposed, then what is Ephesus? Then who are we without the goddess of Artemis? I make it, I protect it, and my identity depends on it. This is how we make idols in our hearts. This is how gods made by hands exert power over us. Not because of any power inherent in them, but because of the power we give to it. And I'm going to say that again. Idols exert power over our lives, not because of any inherent power in them, but because of the power we give to it. Idolatry is self-enslavement to a false god that we create. Can you see just how foolish, how sick and sinful our idolatrous hearts can be? And so when you're feeling busy and overwhelmed for something, evaluate your heart and ask yourself, how much of your busyness is caused by external demands or by internal enslavement to your false god? How much of your feelings of being overpowered is because you're giving power to your idols to overpower you? Or if you're feeling anxious and worried about something, how much of your worry is caused by external factors out of your control or by internal enslavement to your false god? How much of your feelings of being overwhelmed is because your efforts of trying to protect it and save it? 
Do you see this vicious cycle of giving your idols power to then overpower you? What can break this sickening cycle of self-coercion and self-domination to created gods who are not gods at all? Well, only the power of the gospel can disturb, disrupt the power cycle of idolatry. Friends, God wants to win your worship this morning by showing us the foolishness and the self-harm of idolatry, by showing us that gods made by hands are no gods at all. God, through Acts 19, is asking you, what gods rule your life? What temple are you bowing down to? What shrine do you worship at? And the message of Acts 19 is that the power of the gospel through the work of the Holy Spirit, God is not going to leave those shrines alone. For many of you, the place where you are feeling most threatened in this moment in time is exactly the place where God is confronting your deepest idols. How do you know when God is powerfully disturbing and confronting your idols? It's when you are fiercely trying to protect it. Unless God works in your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit to help you realize that gods made by hands are no gods at all, only then will you be broken free from the power cycle of idolatry. Friends, would you hear the proclamation of Scripture this morning? Gods made by hands are no gods at all. Do you know what the temple of Artemis looks like today? Here's a photo. It's just a few stones at a bottom of a dry marsh in a now deserted city. That is what God will do to your idols. Their temples will not stand. Their worship will not last. They cannot promise what they deliver. But how freeing is the power of the gospel to turn you from a God you have to save and protect to a God who does save and protect you? How freeing is it to turn to a God you make to a God that makes you Friends, God, gods made by hands are no gods at all. Your idols won't die for you, but Jesus did. Your idols won't protect you and give you security, but Jesus will. Your idols have no life in themselves, but Jesus gives you life and life to the full. You have to make your own idols, but God has beautifully made you. That is why our church wants to help many people turn from the worship of idols to the worship of Jesus. Jesus is not made by hands. Jesus is not perishable. Jesus is not going to become a ruin. Jesus is resurrected, is the Lord of all, and he welcomes all idolaters to turn from the gods that they've made with their own hands to turn to him in love and worship. Friends, if you're feeling perhaps disturbed or disrupted in your life right now, if you feel like God is threatening your idols, know that Jesus is better.
Jesus is better than any God that you would ever make. And may God powerfully work in your heart and life to uproot and dispose of your idols to win your worship to Jesus. Let's embrace the worship of Jesus. And let's keep proclaiming to the world that gods made by hands are no gods at all. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our creator. We thank you that you sent your son Jesus to reveal who you truly are, to save us from our worship of idols. Father, may you in your mercy disturb and disrupt our hearts and our lives so that we might see the foolishness of the things that we are pursuing, to see the weakness of the things that we are placing our identity on so that we might see Jesus as the one who is worthy of all of our worship, the one who welcomes us who have turned from you by the forgiveness of our sins so that we can live with you forever. May we never use your name to get to the things that we want, but may we glorify and praise your name for the one who saves us, for the one who changes us, for the one who created us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.